Take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Now, we're going to go a lot of scriptures before we get there. All right? And here's what we're going to talk about. You can go back one slide if you want to, too. Where it says, um, if you look out on the wall out there, it says, we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. But the first step in all of that is to exist to glorify God. And so here's what I want to do tonight, all right? I want to talk about the truths of the greatness of the glory of God, that He is the one who deserves our ultimate praise and glory. Now, there is a sense when we do honor other human beings. Um, we give glory to others. We show and let them shine sometimes. For instance, just in this room, we might give honor to um, Cliff Johnson for his years of service and education. Or when Steve retired from DuPont, to give honor to him for years of service. Or for Doc Hagen, for diseases conquered. Right? We give honor to people for that. For Miss Joyce Osborne, for the year she spent here as secretary and the year she spent in children's Sunday school. We give honor for that. But the reality is, there is a sense in which that kind of honor, that kind of recognition, pales in comparison to the absolute and ultimate honor, praise, and glory that ought to go to God. He ought to be the one that receives ultimate glory. We may honor some and give some recognition, but the ultimate honor, praise, and glory goes to him. It goes to him. And so tonight I want to unpack some of the reasons we give him the ultimate honor, praise, and glory. Now, I want to be real honest with you on the front end. I've got about four or five reasons, but it's, uh, I've used this phrase before, tonight's a little bit of a baloney sermon. You can just kind of cut it off wherever and it all still makes sense, all right? So we're just going to kind of walk through this and however far we get, that's where we get, all right? But I need you to kind of stick with me because we're going to meander through some scriptures. And the truth is that what we're going to talk, uh, talk about tonight is a little bit against what the culture tells us we ought to be doing. The culture in which we live is one in which we are encouraged to make much of us. It's a celebrity culture. Everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame. They want to be on TV. They want to be on viral on the Internet. They want everybody to watch them, to see them, to know them. I, I saw last night, um, the, uh, the, some of you all know the name Ed Stetzer. Some of you don't. Ed Stetzer is the vice president of Lifeway. And, and he is in touch with a lot of cultural issues. And apparently some television company contacted him wanting to do a reality series on a preacher. And he just put out there, lots of names come to mind of who not to tell them, don't know who to tell them, and if they want me to tell them, they probably don't need me to tell them. Well, he just put that out there. And it was amazing. I looked at his replies, the number of people that were volunteering. Right? Because the, the culture is, oh yeah, get on reality TV, that'd be fun. Everybody get to see our family. That's what we all want, right? Is cameras on our family 24 hours a day. It's, that would not be good, right? Y'all, if, if our family did that, you would have to sign a waiver that says, whatever comes out, you will still be our pastor, all right? Because nobody wants cameras following them around 24 hours a day. 
We live in a culture that wants to get attention. And it seems that people pull bigger and bigger stunts to get attention. It's like a culture in which there are four children, hypothetically, who all want the attention of one parent. And the only way they know how to do that is to get louder or tug harder or act worse. But Scripture doesn't encourage us at all to make much of us. There is regular encouragement, however, to make much of God. And the amazing, beautiful, delicious irony is this. If we live our lives with the desire to make much of us, we try to build up our ability. We try to get our reputation out there. We try to be popular among people. If we do that, we come to the end and find it empty. It doesn't lead to true satisfaction, fulfillment as human beings. But the scripture teaches us, in contrast to that, if we learn to make much of God and are connected to Him through Christ, we realize then that the one who has everything fully in his own life, we're connected to through Christ, so that He provides what we lack in His infinite abundance. When we make much of God, when we glorify Him, and glorify there just means to make much of Him. Now, I want you to realize that that. When we talk about magnifying God, it's this old distinction. There are two senses the word magnify is used. One is to make something small larger. You magnify it, right? That is not the way we're talking about God. Amen? What we're talking about here is bringing something huge into view where we can see. For instance, it's the difference between a magnifying glass and a telescope. A magnifying glass, what does it do? Anybody use a magnifying glass to read? Okay. Every once in a while, right? You, you got to make something small or bigger so you can see it, right? The ma- what does a telescope do? It brings something that's huge but so far away closer so you can observe it. When we talk about magnifying God, what we're saying is we want to, in a way, describe this infinitely huge being. And we want to see him just a little bit more clearly. True satisfaction comes in knowing who God is and glorifying Him. And here's what I want you to see first tonight. God is is incomparably God in Scripture. As we, in just a moment, are going to take a trip through the Old Testament, really. It's clear, as we look through the Bible, that one of the clearest, most forthright, most prominent themes in all of Scripture is this, that there is one and only one God. We are monotheist. We believe there is only one God and that God is exclusively God. There is no other God and He, that God is incomparably God. There is no one like me, declares the Lord. We find these statements repeated through scriptures. Now we're just going to run through some of them which indicate the goodness of God, the incomparability of God, the deity that he is. All right, we're going to put these up on the screen so you can see them. First is Exodus 8.10. Moses says to Pharaoh, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Now, what is happening here? Moses is talking to Pharaoh. Where is this in scripture? In Egypt, right? What's about to take place? 
Exodus. What's going to take place before the Exodus? The plagues. Now, some of you know this. We've talked about this a little bit. The plagues were a power struggle between God Almighty and the so-called gods of Egypt. And Moses says the entire reason that we are about to experience the plagues that are there is because you have a stubborn heart and that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Exodus 15, 11, the next one. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? This is Moses. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Now, that's what we call a rhetorical question, right? The answer is no one. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is Moses again. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other beside Him. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. You get a theme emerging here? 2 Samuel chapter 7. For this reason you are great, O Lord our God. There is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Now, let me just remind you, this is unique in the ancient world, because in the ancient world, they thought there were lots of gods. Right? They just thought their God was better than your God, and in our land, our God is better than your God. We get to your land, your God may be better. But the over and over in the Old Testament, they say, no, there is no God but our Lord. That's it. Psalm 86. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they will glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Jeremiah chapter 10. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O king of nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of all the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. You see the theme? Good. We got about six more to go. All right. Maybe eight. Isaiah chapter 40. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? To whom then will you say, liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. The answer again is rhetorical. The answer is no one. Isaiah 43. The Lord declares, I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. See, some of you thought that only came up in Revelation. There is no God beside me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. That's what we call a little deified trash talk. All right. The Lord said, who's like me? Declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? Are you not my witness? Is there any God beside me or is there any other rock? I know of none. 
Isaiah 45. I am the Lord. There is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity, I am the Lord who does all these. Isaiah 45. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Three more. Isaiah 45. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Isaiah 46. To whom would you liken me and make me his equal and compare me? That we would be alike. The answer again is no one. Here's the last one. Isaiah 46. We're going to leave this one up for a minute. Remember the former things long past. For I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And for ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Pretty clear isn't it? That the Bible wants us to know that there is one God, and He is God, our Lord. He alone is deserving of ultimate praise and honor and glory. I think about the story of Job. We're going to talk about some things here in a minute about creation. But when you get to Job, and you, those of you that have read the book of Job, it can be a, um, a uh, difficult read. I mean, a lot of people like the first couple of chapters because they're interesting. But then you get in with his friends talking to him and Job responding and friends talking. And it's hard to tell sometimes who's right and who's wrong. And the friends are wrong, but they're saying things like my friends would say. And Job is saying things that seem to cross the line a little bit. And God's just letting this all play out. And you get to the end and Job is kind of, you're like, Job, you're getting a little big for your britches here. What's going on? And right at the end, God, what does he say? Hey, Job, wait a minute. Where were you? When I spread out the earth, where were you? When I called forth the seas, where were you? Can you go over there and tell the sun to come up? It's time for day to happen. Can you go over there and tell the moon time to get up because the night's coming? I don't believe you can, Job. So there's nobody like me. In Scripture, God is incomparably God. Now, why is that the case? Why? Why does he do all the honor and praise and glory? It's not just because he is. Although when you read that, just because he is, is a big deal. Why should we people who wants with all our hearts to give God the glory alone belongs to him? There are many answers in the Bible about why. But just like I said, we're going to walk through at least a couple. The first thing we learn in scripture is that God is exclusively God, incomparably God, Because he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. 
He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. If you've got your Bibles open, look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21. We're going to look at verses 21 through 26 on this particular part. And we're going to talk about some implications of that. And this will not be up on the screen. So if you don't have your Bibles open, just kind of listen. But Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 20, says, Do you not know and have you not heard? Has it not been declared for you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but He blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be as equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Isaiah chapter 40, 21 through 26 is an amazing passage that highlights the supremacy of God and puts the emphasis on the fact that He is Creator. And Here's why that's important. First of all, it's important because it means He is independent of everything He has made. Let me say that again. He is independent of everything He has made. While we, the creatures, are dependent Upon Him for everything. God as Creator is independent of all that He has made. Where we are dependent upon Him for everything. So let's look at those two parts kind of separately. First of all, God's independence from all that He has made. It is clear because God is eternal and existed prior to the universe. You remember that scripture read a minute ago that said, Before me there was no God, there will be not God after me. I alone am the Lord your God. And here's what we have to realize. The universe is unnecessary to God. God didn't need the universe. He was fully God without it. He was God just fine, thank you, without a universe. So when He creates the universe, that does not indicate that somehow God receives something He needs because He didn't need the universe to be God. In fact, God is, the word theologians use, self-existent. In fact, He is the only self-existent entity in the universe. Nothing brought Him into existence. Do you know the question that baffles scientists to this day? Is the question of why is there anything at all? I mean, now, now you, they'll argue about evolution and Big Bang and planets and all that stuff. But the question that gets them is, why is there anything instead of nothing? Because nothing in our world is self-existent. But we know that God is. And that affirms that God possesses within Himself, intrinsically and eternally, everything that is qualitatively good, and He does so in infinite measure. Now, I want to be real honest. We're going to use some big words tonight because there's no way to describe the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of God without using big words. If you don't understand them, just 
I don't either sometimes. So just we'll keep going, all right? Anything that you can think of that is good, any perfection, any attribute that you think of as something that is good, things like righteousness, holiness, wisdom, knowledge, power, goodness. God possesses those intrinsically. It's just part of who He is. Nobody gives anything to God that He doesn't already possess because He is the possessor of everything that is good and He possesses it eternally. So when He created the world, this then is not God creating something He needs. He doesn't need the world He made, but rather is creating in visible form a display of certain aspects of His character. His wisdom, and knowledge, and power, and beauty put on display in creation of a physical, visible form. You ever watched one of those shows that talks about adaptations that animals have made to their environments? Now, now sometimes people get all up in the air about that, talking about, well, I, I, it's hard for me to watch that because of what they claim and about no creator and all that. I just get amazed at the creativity of my God. When I see these animals on the bottom of the ocean that we're just now discovering, you realize that scientists discover species every day that they did not know existed. That's amazing. Didn't know existed. They discover them. Wow, there's something new. God's known it all along. This world, the way it operates... Now, now, I realize that many of us in this room are older than we used to be. Amen? And our bodies break down a little more than they used to. Right? But I want you to think about, when's the last time you had anything that worked for 70 years? Right? Anybody got a refrigerator work for 70 years? We can't make stuff that last. Now, I'm convinced that a conspiracy is happening and manufacturers are making things last shorter times right right i don't, I don't know if y'all know this or not but we have a puppy in the house you know what we've discovered it with the puppy in the house things on the floor don't stay together as long as they used to he bites he chews and they can't withstand that god created us with this amazing ability to self-correct and fuel and last. We hadn't come close to duplicating that. The batteries in my son's video games don't last but about a week. And even if you die young, you're looking at years of your body working. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have to go in for a checkup and an oil change every now and then, right? But in the body magnificently made, it's a display of God's wisdom, His power, His knowledge, His beauty. I took a picture out here a few days ago. It was on one of those cold mornings and the sun was coming up. And I put it up on Facebook, got lots of comments on it. And I didn't do anything to the picture but take a picture of what I saw. And it was majestically beautiful. And people were like, where did you take that? I was like, the church parking lot. Like, it looks like you took it, like, out in the field and nature. No, I took it. There are cars. If you look hard enough, there are cars going across the bottom. Just the beauty of creation. 
That's why scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God, not the heavens. They don't account for how beautiful they are. You can't point to the heavens by themselves and give a reason for why they're there. They declare the glory of God because it's God's wisdom, God's beauty, God's power manifest in the created order. So, while it is the case that God does not depend upon creation he made, he existed as God, fully God, prior to creation, is independent of that created order, it's also then true, the other side of the coin, that we as creatures, all creatures, are dependent on him for everything. Paul said it this way in Acts 17, 25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. See, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. If he gives all things to us, how much are we dependent upon him? If he gives all things to us, how much are we dependent upon him? Completely. It says here that he gives to all people life and breath. Anybody have any idea how many breaths you've taken since you've been sitting in here today? A lot, right? Every one of them, no exception, gift of God to you. So what Scripture says, He grants us breath by which we live. He grants us everything we have. We see, when we see this doctrine of God as creator and what that entails, being independent and us being dependent, you realize we depend on Him for absolutely everything and we can't take credit for anything we have. And we have done a terrible job of living that out. Now, sometimes the way we do that is um, we miss the mark when we talk about humility before God because we point only to the cross. Now, don't get me wrong. The, the cross is the basis for our humility because we can't get rid of our own sin, right? The only way to get rid of our sin was the cross of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing we can do to get rid of our sin. And so absolutely there is humility at the cross as Christ dies for us. But more fundamental than that is God is creator. Where our very life and every quality that we have is given to us by Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you have not received? And the answer to that is nothing. What do you have that you haven't received? In other words, anything and everything we have is a gift. We received it. We've haven't, we haven't done anything to earn it. To talk about what we talked about Sunday, that means everything we have in life is out of grace. We don't have any right to it. It's been given to us. Paul goes on to say, so if you didn't receive it, then why do you boast if you haven't, re- if you haven't done it on your own? Humility before God is this dependence upon Him, understanding He is the one who is the source, that He is good and that everything in Him is good and we get nothing good outside of Him. In fact, James is the one that says every good and perfect gift comes from God. And here's what that also means. If God created all things and He is independent of it, it means that he has rightful rulership over everything he has made. Amen? Everything he's made, he rules it. He controls it. To create is to own, and to own is to have rightful rulership. How much did God create? Everything. 
We got in this discussion a little bit with our boys last night. We read through the first part of Genesis, and I said, God created everything. And they said, so he created this couch. Yes, because he created us and the materials to create the couch. I mean, you leave it to the seven-year-old to ask the tough questions, right? We just watched the Lego movie. In the Lego movie, they had master builders. They said, he's kind of like a master builder. I said, no, because the master builders got all the bricks already out there for him. In the Old Testament, it says that God created. It's a word used only about God that he created means he made something out of nothing. Now, you go home and try to do that. It's not going to happen. If he made it, if he created it, how much does he own? Everything he created. Well, if he created everything and he owns everything he created, how much does he have rightful rulership over? Everything. And that's important because we like to tend to think of our stuff. And if it's our stuff, we have the rights over it. It's amazing to me how Job had the understanding of God that he did. When everything was stripped away from his life, we talked about Job at the end, but what's amazing to me is about Job at the beginning. Do you remember what he said? This is what he said. Naked I have come from my mother's womb. Naked I will return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We don't own anything. I don't care if you've paid the bank off. What does scripture call us? If we're not owners, we are stewards managers God is the owner we are the steward those are two very different categories he's the creator he owns everything he made and he has rightful rulership over all that we made we before him must recognize the tremendous privilege we have of being stewards to what God has given us and not begrudge the fact that he gave somebody else a little bit more Or not proud of the fact that he gives somebody a little less than us. Because it is God who reigns over the giving and the taking. Because it is all his. Two words come to mind when you get that sense in your mind. And the first is a word we've already talked about is humble. And the second is another word we've talked about. Dependent. We recognize he has the greatness and the glory and we don't. Anything we have, we have only because he has given it to us. One scholar says, anything you have, you have derivatively. That's one of those big words, right? means it came from somewhere else. Everything we have, we have because someone gave it to us. Everything God has, he has intrinsically from within. We're humbled before him, recognizing true greatness. It's in Him, not in us. We're dependent upon Him. Everything He gives us, we are dependent upon. Life, breath, things. Dependent rather than entitled. Understanding God this way destroys any sense of entitlement before God. We recognize our dependence on Him for everything and mercy He grants us. Why is God to be glorified above all else? Because He is the creator of the heavens And the earth. And here's the second reason. This is all we're going to get to tonight. He's also 
worthy of all the praise and the honor because he is the redeemer of his rebellious creatures. Now, I just want to stop for a second and think for a minute for all of us that this point didn't have to be. Here's what I mean. God created us. We're dependent upon him. We owe him our allegiance. We owe him our worship. We are dependent on him for everything. We owe him the adoration that he alone deserves because he's creator. We owe it to him. But what did we do as creatures? We rebelled, right? Went our own way. We committed tyranny against the Most High. We brought upon ourselves the condemnation, the just condemnation of the creator, owner, God. He could have said, that's it. Consigned us all eternity away from Him and be done. But this is what is amazing. That Creator God, who looks now upon us as sinners deserving judgment, designed a plan by which He could redeem us, save us from our sin, bring us back to Himself so that we could with Him then again experience the fullness of joy we only know because we are with the One who has it all. Here's how he accomplished it. This is, if you've still got your Bible open to Isaiah, turn over to chapter 52. We're going to need a few verses out of 52 and a few verses out of 53. Chapter 52, verse 7 says this, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who announce peace and bring good news of happiness, who announce salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen. Your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together. We're also going to jump over to 53, verse 4 through 6. For they will see their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together. You waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has, ble- has excuse me, the Lord has bared His holy arm in the sights of the nation that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Now, how did he bring this about, this saving work? What well, tells us in Isaiah 53? Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. The astonishing, amazing fact is that the God who is creator, who did not need the world that he created, now looks at this world that he created with its human population sinful, all choosing to sin against him, turned away from him, and his compassion devises a plan that we may be freed from our sin and brought back to him. God is holy. We've sung about it, right? It's the first hymn in the hymnal. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as the holy God, He cannot have in His presence those who have chosen to rebel against Him and the sinful lives we live. God loves us. If God gave us the task of getting rid of our own sin, it would never happen. There are no works we could do. There's no amount of church going or good deeds that we can do that would rid us of the sin of our lives that would qualify us to stand in the presence of an almighty, holy God. But in His mercy, He sent His Son. No less than His one and only 
Son. To come and take on our human form and bear our sin in His body on the cross that He might pay for that sin, that we, by faith and faith alone, might be brought back to Him with our sins forgiven, restored in fellowship to Him, and enter into the newness of life that will never, ever end. What an incredible plan the Lord had. I mean, look at what Isaiah 53, 4 says. It says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, our sins He carried. But if you look at the second part of that verse, it says, If you were there on the day that they crucified my Lord. You, you know the old spiritual song, right? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? If you would have been there, most of us think if we would have been there, we would have been overwhelmed with grief and gratitude for what Christ was doing. But the truth is, Scripture tells us that on the day He hung on the cross, we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, He would have looked like He's getting exactly what He deserved, that He was being punished for the sin of Himself. But the truth is, the rest of that in verse 5, it says, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On that cross, He was not getting what He deserved. He was getting what we deserve. Bore the sin of our lives. The penalty of that sin. So by faith, we could be brought into a newness of a relationship with the Father. And a brand new life. It's an amazing work that God has done for us in Christ. And no other work of salvation is necessary or possible. It means that the only way of salvation is through what Jesus has done for us. Now, that is not popular today. In fact, it's highly objectionable because people want to say Jesus is a way to salvation, not the way. But it's true. And because it's true, we can't shy away from it. Destinies are at stake and our fidelity to God and Christ is at stake, whether we are faithful to the gospel message. But by the way, let me ask you this question. How many saviors does a world need? If it works, you only need one, right? We've got one that works. We don't need 18 or 20 of them. We just need one. Jesus of Nazareth, Savior of the world. God's only Son, whose death on the cross paid the penalty of our sin. Anyone who believes in Him, we brought into a relationship with Him. God is praised because He is the Redeemer of His rebellious creatures. I mean, even you look back to chapter 52, in verse 10, it says, The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. This is what's interesting about that. You realize the main point of the prophecy in Isaiah 52 is a prophecy to Israel, the Old Testament people of God, that He would not in the end cast them and judge them, that instead God in the end would save His people. And we who are believers in Jesus, though most of us in this room, if not all of us, are Gentiles by birth, we are the category of the people that salvation is promised because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, it says in Romans. It is the power of God for everyone who believes. Praise be to God. Most of us wouldn't be here if this way hadn't been made. 
But because the gospel is the gospel to all, it means the mission's mandate is in this place. The gospel must go forth. You see, in chapter 52, we're reminded that Jesus didn't die on the cross just for you. Now, I know that, that we like to take John 3.16 and we like to put our name in it, for God so loved Lyle, that he, and it's true, but it's not just for you. It says that it is to the ends of the earth may see the salvation of your God, of our God. We may take it to the nations. And it's a holy responsibility. It's a holy weight. It's a weight because we realize what is at stake, whether we get the gospel out there to people or not. And these nations of the world, the missionary enterprise is absolutely essential because people cannot be saved through Christ. And to be saved from, uh, through Christ, they have to hear of Christ. And to hear of Christ, they have to be sent. And to be sent, there have to be people sending and going. Remember Romans 10, Paul says, Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how shall they call upon the name of the Lord whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in them that they have not heard? And how shall they hear unless someone speak? And how shall someone speak unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings. Here's what I want you to realize. We talked about at the beginning that we exist to glorify God. Here's what I want you to realize. Part of what it means to glorify God as Redeemer is to honor the gospel that He gave us, to take it to the nations that people may hear and be saved. God deserves ultimate glory, absolute praise from His people because He created them and because He redeemed them. That's as far as we're getting tonight. So that's pretty good, isn't it? Amen. It's an amazing thought of how big he is. I marvel sometimes when I watch the news or I see pictures from outer space. And somebody has said that if we discover at the end of time that we are the only ones here, intelligent life in the universe, God sure did show out for us. Because he made our home a lot bigger than we'll ever need. Right? Man, it is absolutely stunning. I mean, to think that God placed stars in place that we would view from earth in organized ways is just an amazing thought of His care for us. We exist to glorify God. But the rest of that purpose statement is just as important. And the way that we do that is leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Him. So how are you glorifying God as being creator and redeemer. Let's pray.